first episode in 2019 for the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrew Robinson, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Peter Chur, Major General James Spider-Marks, and Lieutenant General David Deptula. Today, we'll be discussing the recent announcement of U.S. troops being withdrawn from Syria. Also, as the U.S. government has been shut down for over three weeks, a possible state of emergency declaration may be in our future. We have Peter Chur to share his thoughts on how this might impact the markets, as well as General Marks and General Deptula comments on the state of emergency and government shutdown. But first, Syria. As the U.S. continues to assert its influence in support of our nation's interests in the region, it is especially our pleasure to have General Deptula weigh in on this topic. He was recently published in Forbes, sharing his thoughts on emphasizing U.S. air power in Syria. Rachel. I'm going to pass it to you to begin the conversation over Syria. General Deptula, General Marks, thanks so much for joining us today. At the end of last year, the president announced that he had made the decision to withdraw all troops from Syria. This decision was met with surprise and some opposition. General Deptula, you've been active, as Andy's mentioned, in discussing this decision and what it means for strategy in Syria and the Middle East in general. Can you please lay out the framework for the implications of this decision or what it may look like moving forward if this sort of strategy is implemented? Well, thanks, Rachel. It, it is an interesting situation that we find ourselves in. As the president has talked about, we have been, over the course of the last four years or so, very successful in uh, reducing down to 1% or less of the territory that the Islamic State originally held. So his decision has been to withdraw all uh, U.S. ground forces from Syria uh, and uh, some from Afghanistan. And there's been what one could describe as a wailing and gnashing of teeth over that decision. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, the decision has been made. Uh, and I think some of the discussion as to whether it's the appropriate one or not uh, has obscured a more important concern, and that's how to best optimize U.S. security interests in these countries um, with a view to the future. Now, this also is a topic that directly relates to the president's next choice for secretary of uh, defense. But to the heart of your question in our subject area this morning, um, there are ways to assure um, America's security interests in the region without having a significant presence of conventional U.S. ground forces uh, in the region. I mean, we have done this uh, before, and it really relies on taking a true joint approach uh, to bringing together uh, America's asymmetric advantages and matching them with indigenous ground forces in the region. Um, what I'm talking about is bringing and relying uh, to a greater degree on uh, aerospace power to control the situation in conjunction with indigenous uh, forces. Now, this is something uh, that shouldn't be a surprise to many folks because it's the model that we used in the opening three months of uh, Operation Enduring Freedom or our actions in Afghanistan. And quite frankly, there were three critical interests that the United States had at the time. Uh, and if I can refresh your audience's memory of those, the first one was to remove the Taliban regime from power. 
the second one was to assure that there was a government in Afghanistan was friendly to the United States. And the third one was the elimination of the Al-Qaeda terrorist training camp, camps in the region. And what we did with a combination of a small number of special operations forces who are linked up with the Northern Alliance or indigenous ground forces, we then brought to bear uh, the power and might of uh, American air power. And within three months, Cabal had been uh, retaken and uh, we uh, had accomplished these objectives. We then entered a different stage to that conflict and became involved in attempting to convert Afghanistan into a Jeffersonian-type democracy, which I would tell you was unobtainium. So the, the caution that we need to take here is that we don't get so wedded to our ground force presence that we allow the mission to creep into other than what our critical U.S. national security interests were. Now, obviously, uh, the situation in uh, Syria uh, is significantly different than the one that we encountered in Afghanistan in 2001 in terms of national security interests. Uh, but I would tell you that one of the errors that we made going in uh, to Syria was that the strategy that was taken was by applying a, a counterinsurgency perspective to the conditions that the Islamic State held in both Syria and Iraq, analogous to what was going on in Afghanistan, and I would tell you that wasn't the case. The critical U.S. national security interest in Syria was to prevent the Islamic State from having a sanctuary from which to export terror. So our focus should have been on eliminating the ability of the Islamic State to operate focused on Syria first and then assisting the Iraqis in um, ejecting the Islamic State um, from their country second. But in fact, we did the opposite. Now, look, I don't want to spend a lot of time rehashing history, uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, today eliminating what remains of the Islamic State blocking Iranian weapons proliferation, and tempering Russian regional adventurism doesn't require an open-ended U.S. conventional ground presence in Syria. Uh, indeed, I would suggest that would be counterproductive and get us mired into another region in the Mideast that um, we seem to have difficulty extracting ourselves from. Uh, instead, I think that the way forward is to take a much more innovative strategic approach that makes the most of the unique asymmetric advantages of American aerospace power linked in conjunction with the indigenous forces in the region to secure uh, the eastern segment of Syria, eliminate the remaining elements of the Islamic State, and act as a blocking force to the Iranians who uh, obviously are moving or attempting to move more missiles and armament into uh, Lebanon and uh, Syria through uh, Iraq. So my point is that the president will not lose the peace in Syria if he uses air power wisely. And that's in conjunction with friendly ground forces who have the, the natural and the resolute interest in controlling the territory of eastern Syria. So what his challenge, frankly, is, is finding advisors 
who uh, aren't steeped in the conventional and costly boots on the ground mindset that's been predominant in the Pentagon uh, and on various presidential national security teams um, for the last 17 plus years. General Marks, I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts as it pertains to Syria and the recent announcement. Well, well Rachel, thanks very much. Um, what General Deptula described uh, really is is quite logical, and frankly, I concur with probably about 85% of it. What concerns me is that what we might do in Syria is learn lessons and then export those lessons to other regions around the world that do not necessarily fit the conditions that exist in those other locations. What I'm trying to say is that Syria is a problem and has been a mess for close to a decade, and the United States has been diverted elsewhere in the Mideast, tangent to this increasing chaos in Syria, yet not in a position or has chosen not to take a position to try to influence what that outcome looks like. However, over the course of the last four, last four years, as General Deptula has indicated, the United States has put a concerted effort on trying to eliminate the geographic caliphate that ISIS has created in Syria. And over that time, we've been very successful. I think also is that if we had taken a more aggressive approach toward quote, attacking this problem in Syria earlier on with a far more suffocating and powerful air campaign, we could have eliminated ISIS and its geographic caliphate through a very aggressive air campaign far quicker than we have. Now, having said that, what we are doing now in Syria to remove U.S. forces is not apocalyptic. It's it's not going to fundamentally alter Uh, U.S. uh, ability to influence in that region. However, here's the concern that I have is that in addition to the three objectives that General Deptula mentioned that are unique to Syria, which are to block Russian adventurism and to eliminate ISIS and to block Iranian weapons proliferation, I would suggest there is a fourth that needs to be Uh, developed for this region, but then needs to be the model that we hold on to, that we export elsewhere. And we've experienced this, and we tried to execute this in Iraq and Afghanistan with a a different balance in both cases and with a, a checkered level of success in both. And that is the United States, in order to prevent the conditions that would cause us to then go in and execute an aggressive air campaign to fix a problem, we need to try to a priori prevent a problem. And that requires our ability to to exercise and employ the elements of power across the board. If we want to try to hold and stabilize and then build, which requires a large investment of U.S. capital and resources, both money, finances, as well as personnel, We have to be able to do that very, very precisely and tailored to the conditions that we want to try to achieve on the ground. So I I would suggest that what General Deptula said makes perfect sense, but there is a requirement for boots on the ground in some, by some definition, whether those are indigenous, whether those are U.S., and they have to be effects-based. They have to be based on what are the functions that we're trying to achieve on the ground. So there remains a requirement for the influence that we can provide, we, the United States, can provide by way of 
a presence on the ground to get ahead of and to sh- get ahead of problems and to shape conditions on the ground so that our application of air power and or special ops or other elements of power to try to fix a problem has now been minimized because we've gotten ahead of that problem before it exists. So my, v- my view in Syria is simply that. Let's take these lessons learned. Let's take what General Deptula has described, I think, very, very effectively. But let's be careful about how we export those to other regions around the world, for example, in the EU, um, in Ukraine, in Indonesia, uh, possibly the subcontinent, and our, you know, our burgeoning, growing, very um, dependent and very trusting relationship that we're developing with India. Um, we, we have to make sure that how we use all those elements of power are done very, very precisely and very specifically. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with uh, what uh, General Mark said at all. My uh, only caveat there is that it is probably um, more productive. Uh, obviously, you have to have people on the ground. There's, there's no, no doubt about it because that's where, that's where folks live. That's where uh, their concerns reside. So uh, the issue is, do they have to be uh, U.S. boots on the ground, uh, to which I say, in this particular situation, the 2,000 or so U.S. ground forces that uh, have been in Syria have been uh, very effectively used in training and assisting the indigenous forces who really have the, the tie to that region. And I think that uh, to a degree, there still will be U.S. ground forces involved, but they'll be very, very small uh, elements. Uh, uh, and, and generally, we don't talk about this, but you know, generically speaking, uh, in terms of doing the same kind of assistance and training and advising, uh, and those are through small units of special operations forces. Uh, but uh, yeah, you got to have folks on the ground who c- can actually control and occupy uh, the territory. So it's a, a matter of how do we assemble a strategy to extract uh, the numbers that we have there so we don't get further uh, immersed into a region that is uh, a very, very uh, volatile. In my view, I, I think what I'm, what I'm saying here relative to Syria is Syria is already in the crapper, if you will, and our strategy at this point going forward is to try to fix what we can fix, yet there will continue to be chaos in that region as long as you have Russian influence, Assad is not going anywhere, Turkish adventurism, and in fact, a complete uh, disagreement with the United States in terms of how to view the contributions of the Kurds in northern Syria and their efforts in support of the U.S. effort to eliminate ISIS. We will continue to have these kinds of um, challenges in Syria. So our strategy at this point relative to Syria is let's acknowledge it's a mess. Let's acknowledge that the United States presence on the ground has accomplished what we have asked it. We, the United States taxpayer, have asked it to do. And we will continue to monitor it. And we have an overwhelming capability to see into what's happening in Syria and to affect conditions on the ground through, as you've indicated, General Deptula, a real aggressive asymmetric capability that no one else enjoys. 
However, going forward, this is where I'd say is if we're going to get ahead of problems, there has to be a larger and more, full, more fulsome application of all those elements of power. Yeah, Rachel, you were taking us into a discussion on uh, Turkey, which um, I think is most appropriate here because the fact of the matter is whether there are significant numbers of U.S. or, or not significant, the numbers of U.S. ground forces, if they remained, which they won't, um, and when they leave, uh, Turkey's still talking about uh, going ahead with an offensive against the Syrian Kurdish fighters in Syria. Uh, so this poses uh, a, a challenge uh, for the United States either way. And one could make the case that it's even more complex um, if the 2,000 or so ground force, U.S. ground forces remain. Um, so these are topics that are unfolding uh, today. Uh, most recently, the well, not most recently, but... <laughs> Uh, for the last several months uh, and years, Turkey has condemned the United States for its military relationship um, with the uh, Kurdish fighters. Uh, I know it gets confusing sometimes with all the different acronyms, but uh, Turkey considers the YPG and its political wing, the Kurdish Democratic Union Party, or the PYD, to be terrorist groups, um, with ties to the banned Kurdish Workers' Party, which is the PKK in uh, Turkey. Uh, and uh, uh, the, 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 the loggerheads that we're at right now diplomatically is that just this past Sunday, uh, U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton had set preconditions for the U.S. pullout from Syria that included Turkey guaranteeing the safety of the YPG. Now, the probability that that's going to happen uh, is uh, infinitesimal at best uh, because uh, Turkey has rejected these demands uh, and uh, most likely uh, will go on with their offensive. Uh, a matter of fact, uh, Turkish President uh, Erdogan uh, in the last couple of days denounced uh, Bolton's call for the protection of uh, Kurdish fighters and called it seriously uh, mistaken. So, you know, when uh, uh, General Marx is talking about the complexity of the region, you know, it's not just Russia, it's not just Iran, it's not just Syria, it's not just the Kurds, um, it, it, it's Turkey too. Uh, so it's hard to imagine a more complex uh, mix of geopolitical interests uh, all in one place. You know, Dave, the, um, the, the region really is, um, as you've described, an acronym headache with the YPG and the PKK. Um, my concern, and I know you share this, is what we have is Turkey announcing and have, has already acknowledged that the YPG is, in fact, a terrorist organization. And they will, in fact, do everything in their power to ensure that their border, their southern border with Syria, is not challenged like it has been in the past by the YPG and other elements that exist within the Kurdish fighting regime and those elements. Um, it really sends a very powerful message to our other allies, friends, and partners, and burgeoning partners, those that might be on the fence, that the United States might not be there for them when things start going south and things get tough. Um, and then my final concern is truly what we see now is a strategy 
and the evolution of a strategy playing out in the public domain. Uh, Bolton goes to visit with Erdogan. He doesn't, Erdogan does not host him. And in fact, Erdogan then goes publicly and says, I think what Mr. Bolton has offered is inappropriate because I, the president of Turkey, had a conversation with President Trump and we see it differently. So this confusion within the administration, again, is not new or unique to this administration, but it's being played out publicly, which causes a lot of discourse and a lot of concern for those internationally with whom we must rely for access and influence on the ground. And that's truly, I think, what we would agree is that our strategy going forward, uh, frankly, our historical strategy has always been one that has been based on and and, uh, foundationally depended upon access to regions around the world through partners and allies. That has not subsided, yet we send the message that the United States may not be a good bet. And that's what concerns me. Yeah, that's a, you know, in a nutshell, um, you uh, laid out the uh, the challenges that we're facing because <laughs> normally you're dealing with protecting uh, a partner in a region against uh, a common adversary. In this case, Turkey is a NATO ally, uh, which is really what complicates the situation. Uh, now, uh, you know, I personally spent two years in Turkey running the uh, Operation Northern Watch, the Joint Task Force uh, overseeing the no-fly zone in northern Iraq. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can tell you that uh, the, the Turks uh, have a visceral uh, uh, relationship uh, opposing uh, the the, the Kurds uh, in, in, in their attempts to try to secure uh, independence, particularly when it's in the western portions of, of, of Turkey. Uh, so it's not a subject area or an issue that's going to be uh, easily uh, resolved because I think the fundamental problem is that, you know, we, the United States, are dealing with uh, two elements who are in an adversarial relationship with one another um, where we find it and have found it beneficial to view both of them as partners. Dave, and also let me anecdotally kind of conclude, if, if I can, is that our nation owes you a great debt, a deal of, of thanks. Uh, you did a fen- phenomenal job as, in your efforts up on uh, Operation Northern Watch keeping Saddam Hussein in a very well-defined box. So good job, brother. Well, hey, thank you. That's, I, I wasn't looking for that, but I'll take it. Thank you. Gentlemen, I'd like to switch gears to a complicated and contentious issue in our hemisphere. The government has been shut down. There are threats of the utilization of a state of emergency in order to secure our th- southern border. Peter, I'd like to throw it over to you and see how you view the market reacting to a 22-plus day government shutdown. And General Marks and General Deptula, if you could please discuss the validity of using a state of emergency to help uh, make the impact that legislation currently isn't, and uh, what the ramifications are of using military resources uh, to achieve these ends. Thanks, Rachel. I think from a market perspective, there's 
increasing concern about the shutdown. And it's not that the shutdown really affects the economy directly necessarily, but it's, I think, viewed as a symbol of just how dysfunctional D.C. has become, that we're kind of headed towards a record in terms of number of days of shutdown. And lately, the potential for the president to declare a state of emergency to get the wall funding has become a big kind of problem, I think, for the market. Once again, it's not so much the $5 billion, it's not whether the wall should be funded or shouldn't be funded, it's that this would be such a unique step to get something done that the president wants done, that the market would get very concerned that we are entering a new phase of kind of political willingness to do things very differently, and that would scare the market. I think the market's always kind of relied on the checks and balances, and that no one can do too much in D.C., without it going, and that ultimately D.C. does come together and get things approved and done. And we are kind of heading towards more and more dysfunctional, and the state of emergency, whether it's legal, illegal, whether it stays, doesn't stay, whether it's necessary or not, would just be viewed as a very you know, treacherous step for the president to take and would impact, I think, markets pretty negatively because it would be symbolic of just how bad D.C. is becoming. And, but I do think people want to know how plausible is it for the president to do it? Can it get done? And those sorts of questions are also on everyone's mind. Well, Rachel, let me jump in there if I can. Peter, thanks very much. I, um, I, Having gone through several declarations of a state of emergency while in uh, service to nation, I can tell you that, um, you know, the president of the United States has incredibly broad powers, uh, but every time he exercises those powers, uh, there is immense legal challenges uh, to ensure, number one, that the president is moving and energizing the nation in the right way. Because you, when, you, when the president speaks, it's, inc- it's an incredible bully pulpit, as we know. Things can move and there are unintended consequences. Um, and so the president often will act with hopefully a degree of caution, yet with a degree of confidence. For example, during the L.A. riots, you know, the activation of the National Guard caused an immense you know, an incredible response on the ground. Um, I was intimate in terms of how that came together, yet there was a very precise start date and an equally precise end date. Um, but then there were some consequences from that that lasted, le- I mean, legitimately for months following the closure or at least the, the, the end of that state of emergency. So the key thing in my mind is, very sharp legal review to ensure that the president is on um, very safe ground, but legally there needs to be a very clear path so the president can achieve what he needs to try to achieve. We don't want to hamstring the president, but there has to be a limit in terms of how those powers can be exercised. General Zatula, what are your thoughts on the matter? (laughs) What a mess. Um, uh, and and uh, listen, I concur with uh, both of the comments that uh, Peter and uh, Joan Marks have made. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, this situation has become so emotionally charged uh, that rational uh, options uh, seem to be uh, um, very, very, very far off uh, in the distance. Uh, and uh, back to uh, Peter's concern. Uh, in terms of what that's going to do for uh, the market uh, is disconcerting. Uh, So uh, it's difficult to see a way ahead right now to resolution. 
uh, unless people are willing to take some of the emotion out of their positions uh, and make pragmatic decisions with respect to what's best for the nation. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. You know, anytime you're involved in a, in a state of an emergency like this, and as General Deptula described, this is wrapped almost exclusively now, the discussion of what takes place on our southern border and whether there is funding for a wall and whether that wall goes up and whether it's concrete or steel is just wrapped entirely by politics. The rationality of the discussion is, yes, we are porous on our southern border, um, yes, there are, the President of the United States has immense powers and can, can make decisions that affect the United States um, in, in ways that we have never seen. Um, the goodness in all of this is that there is, within our, within our democracy, an invitation to struggle, a demand to struggle among the, um, the three bodies of governance. So I, I am comfortable that we will not see us go down a path where we'll have a, we, we could have a, an impasse in terms of um, funding for the government, but again, it is a purely political decision, yet we have to keep focused on the fact that there is a legitimate problem that needs to be addressed. That's what concerns, I would say, without being presumptuous, Peter, that's what concerns the markets. Peter, any final thoughts to add? Yeah, I think that's all great. And I think it makes a ton of sense. And I think, you know, to summarize for our clients is the president certainly has within his rights to attempt this. It doesn't sound like it's likely to be very successful over the long run. And to go down this path kind of opens up a can of worms that's just not worth it relative to what we're talking about. So I think the market's reactions would be right. And hopefully we kind of, you know, solve these issues without taking that next step, which does sound like it would be problematic for most people. Thank you, Rachel, Peter, General Marks, and General Deptula for sharing your thoughts on these topics. I'd also like to thank our listeners for giving us the time today. If you'd like to interact with our geopolitical and macro strategy experts directly, please reach out by writing us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. Learn more by visiting our website at www.academysecurities.com. This is your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to sharing with you more in our next episode. Thanks. Thanks.